Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we are going to finish up the 12th chapter this morning. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. And we're going to read down to verse 29 to the end of the chapter. And you'll find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open. Reading along there with me um, always helps us, especially as we look at a book that's so packed with theological truth as Hebrews to, to have our own copies open and, and looking there. And before we do look at Hebrews twelve eighteen through 29, let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we would know power. We would not just know the word of truth, but we would know the power of the gospel at work among us today. And so we plead with you, Father, that you would manifest your great power and your great grace, that you would send conviction of sin and that you would give the opening of the eyes of the hearts of every man and woman and boy and girl present here. We pray that, Lord Jesus, you would be seen and heard and embraced and trusted and that we would delight ourselves in you and that you would give us joy inexpressible and full of glory as we consider what great things you have done for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes this morning in our lives. We pray that you would work in the way that only you can. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. There, the writer of Hebrews says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further message might be spoken to them. Clearly, he's talking about Mount Sinai and Exodus 19 and 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will Shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, not long after I was first converted, I went on a trip to Europe, and as we made our way through one of the premier cities in one of the great countries of Europe, we came 
to one of the famous cathedrals, and I'll remember, I'll never forget the group that we went with going into that cathedral, and everyone who was on this trip together just standing in awe at the, the amazing architecture, the paintings that line the inside of that cathedral. And I'll never forget how as we walk through, the people that walk through there with me were, were talking about how overwhelmed they were with the beauty of this building. And then I'll never forget, as we made our way coming out, seeing all these people bowing down, praying to idols in that cathedral, bowing down and praying to gods that don't have eyes or ears, that can't see or hear, bowing down to candles and things that can do nothing for their souls. And I remember the sense of sadness and anger and yet gratitude that God had opened my eyes. And then I'll never forget walking out of that cathedral and seeing a church group who had come probably from North America and who were singing hymns out in front of that cathedral. And the contrast between those bowing down and worshiping idols and those whose hearts were full of grace having heavenly worship out in front of that building was so overwhelming to me that I'll never forget saying to the other people there, this is vastly more magnificent than anything we saw in that cathedral. And I think it's an interesting contrast because what the writer of Hebrews is doing in this passage is he's giving us a contrast. And that contrast is on the one hand with the externals of the worship that Israel experienced at Mount Sinai when God first redeemed them and called them. And that was in their history the greatest expression of worship, gathered worship at Mount Sinai. They were there at the mountain. They heard God. They saw the thunder and the lightning and the darkness. They saw Moses come down from that mountain with his face radiating something of the glory of God. And yet the writer of Hebrews is contrasting that worship with the worship that we experience in the new covenant. It's a dramatic contrast. It's a contrast between law and gospel, between the justice of God and the righteousness of God and the grace and the mercy of God. And the difference, and I'll tell you up front, the difference between these two settings that the writer contrasts is that Mount Sinai, there was no mediator named Jesus and there was no blood of sprinkling that quieted the justice and the law of God for guilty sinners like us. And that at Mount Sinai, and notice there that as the writer moves from Sinai on to Zion, and he comes and he shows us all the things that are there in that heavenly worship room, and he tells us, almost holding it out to the last thing in verse 24, that we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And so this morning we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the greatness of the blessing of being part of a worshiping community in the new covenant. Secondly, we're going to see the heightened sense of responsibility that this brings. And third, we're going to see the call to respond to these privileges of grace. We'll notice that the writer has moved from this example of Esau saying, don't be like Esau who was profane, who didn't care about God's covenant promises. Esau would have sat in church week after week. He would have laughed. He would have smirked. He would have hardened his heart. He did not believe the promises of God. He, he would have sighed every time his father told him about the blessings of God. And now the writer is moving from Esau. And you might think that we're done with these heavy warnings not to be like Esau, not to live in unbelief, not to profane the holy things of God. And yet the writer then brings us to Sinai. And, and let me say this up front. There is no comfort at Sinai. 
There is no comfort at Sinai. The way that the writer of Hebrews describes this for us, he says you have not come to what may be touched. Now, I think you have to remember that the danger of these people to whom the writer is writing is that they had been Hebrews, they had been Jews, they had been converted, they had believed on the Lord Jesus, they had made profession of faith. Some of them were now in danger to going back to Judaism, which at that time was very external, ritualistic, external things by which they thought God accepted them in all of the, the external rituals of cultic worship. And they're tempted to go back, and the writer's been saying to them, don't go back, don't turn back, don't turn back to perdition, do not turn away from Jesus Christ. And now he tells us, listen, the first generation of Israel, they had an external form of worship at the mountain. They came to a mountain that could be touched. It was tangible. They could see Mount Sinai. They could hear the thunderings and the lightnings. There were external manifestations of God's presence and his holiness at Sinai. And notice what he says. He says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now, let me say this off the bat. While there were believers at Sinai, there were believers. Moses was one of them. Aaron was another one. Even though Aaron makes the golden calf at the foot of the mountain, there were believers at Sinai who were trusting in the coming Redeemer. But there were many, many, many unbelieving at Sinai. And what God did at Sinai was he gave his law. He gave the the two tablets of the covenant. He gave the Ten Commandments. and, And they were the moral standard for all men, for all time. And God was saying, I am holy. And God was saying, this is what it means to be holy. And to be in my presence, you must be holy. And yet, what was noticeably absent at Sinai was any intimation of grace and mercy at the mountain. There was no sacrifice at the foot of the mountain. There was no intimation of God's forgiveness and mercy and grace there as Israel stood and they heard the words of God as Moses gave them the law of God, as they saw the darkness and the gloom, as they heard the trumpet. And the question we have to ask is, why? Why did God do all these things? If the God of Scripture is so gracious and so merciful, if the God of Scripture says, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls, if the God of Scripture says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. If the God of scripture says, I forgive iniquity and transgressions and sins. If the God of scripture says, who is a God like me? Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Why did the God of scripture thunder in darkness and fire and gloom at Sinai? Because it would be a symbol of what the law had to do in the consciences of men in order to drive them to Jesus Christ. Puritan uh, theologian John Owen makes a huge deal about this, that, that this language of what Israel saw physically, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest, that that's symbolic of the steps by which God's law comes to convict the souls of men and women, that they get a sense of judgment, they have a sense of guilt and shame, they have a sense when God's law comes, it does its work of convicting, it does its work of condemning. And you know what? We don't want to move past that if we've never gone through that and had that drive us to Christ. There's a danger. There's a danger in just wanting to hear about grace and mercy and just wanting to hear about 
peace and joy and all the good, rich things of Jesus Christ, which things the scripture marvelously set out for us to believe and embrace. But if the law doesn't do its work in the souls of men and women, if you've never had the conviction and the condemnation of the law, if the law has never come in to crush and to kill and to drive to Christ, then that means that you don't know the grace and the mercy and the joy and the peace of Jesus Christ. It's the way God works. The law comes to drive to the gospel. And so Israel should have known that. We should know that. But the writer says, notice that it was so terrible that even the words that God spoke were unbearable. Listen to this. John Owen again says this. Although it is evident that they were terrified with the dreadful appearances on the mount, yet was it the speaking of God himself that utterly overwhelmed them? What was worse than the storm and the fire and the darkness and the thundering was the voice of God, was the law of God. It weighed heavy on the people. The people said, don't let God speak to us anymore. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. At the foot of Sinai, their response is to Moses, tell God not to speak to us anymore. We can't take it. It's a very common response today. That's how most men respond. Don't let God speak anymore. I don't want that. I don't want to hear that. And notice, the writer tells us that God's law was, was so convicting and heavy in the way that it came to the people and in its terrors and in its judgments. Notice verse 20. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. How is that fair? How is it fair that the least of the animals should be counted unclean for touching the mountain of God's holiness. How is that fair? How is that fair? That's fair because God is infinitely holy. Let me say this this morning. You have no idea how holy God is. Let me say that again. We have absolutely no idea how holy God is. Never in your life have you had one second of a right apprehension of the holiness of God. And so we need every help we get. We need to hear that even if the the smallest animal among the Israelites touched the mountain, the death penalty would fall on it because of God's holiness and righteousness. Because you know what? It doesn't help anybody to tell people that God is a nice, dirty God like us. It doesn't help anybody. John Gerstner tells a story about... um, two little boys who are playing and, um, and they're outside and they're getting muddy and they run into uh, the one boy's house and they're tracking mud through the house and the boy who's visiting his friend's house says, well, isn't your mommy going to be mad that we're tracking mud into the house? And, um, and the other little boy said, oh no, my mom, she doesn't care. And the little boy visiting said, oh, how I wish I had a nice, dirty mommy like you. And Gerstner goes on to say, most people want a nice, dirty God like them. They want a nice, dirty God who thinks the way they do and approves the things they do. And God is not like that at all. God is not like that at all. And you know what? We ought to be glad that God's not like that. Because if God was a nice, dirty God like us, think of the the ruin that would bring. Think of the terror that would produce. Better to fall under the conviction of God's holiness and flee to Jesus for restoration and healing 
than for God to be a, an evil God, a capricious God, a God who can turn and could destroy you even though you had in some way went to him for pardon. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, notice, he says that even a beast couldn't touch the mountain or it would be stoned. And then notice verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, when, when, if you were an Israelite and you read that, Moses saying, I tremble for fear, your response should have been, uh-oh. If our mediator, Moses, he's the mediator between God and man in the Old Covenant, he's on the mountain, he's the one that's called to go up into the most holy place. God says, take your shoes off your feet, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Moses, draw near to me, you are my servant, you are my beloved, I've made you my mediator. If Moses was terrified on the mountain, the response should be, uh-oh. We have, a, we have a godly, holy, redeemed, believing mediator in Moses, and he's afraid. And so the great problem with Sinai is that God was not the mediator, and that there wasn't blood to cover the transgressions, and there wasn't a sense of the mercy and grace. There was no grace. At this point, in this particular segment, there was no grace at Sinai. Now, God would give a sacrificial system. God would give... A priesthood. The Lord would give a temple. But even there, even there, you may never meet the high priest who could go into the most holy place once a year. And you relied very heavily on a system of external priesthood to help you in your approach to God. And here's the big thing we have to take away everything about Sinai says turn away. And now, by contrast, everything about Mount Zion says, draw near. Everything about the mountain that may be touched said, turn away. And everything about the heavenly mount says, draw near. Now notice what the writer says as he contrasts these two things. He says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. His point is not to leave you under the weight of the law. His point is to say, if you have come to Jesus Christ, you have come not to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now, Zion was that mountain in Jerusalem where the king's house and the temple were in the Old Testament. In in the city of God, the people went from Sinai to Jerusalem and to Zion. And, And here the writer, though, is telling us that that was just a type. It was just a picture of the heavenly mountain and God's throne and his temple in majesty and his rule. And he says, if you're a believer, this is the experience you have Because Christ has gone into the most holy place in his ascension, he has carried us in with him. And when we go to God in prayer, we go into, and when we come together for worship, we we enter into heavenly worship. You know, sitting here in your chair in the city center, you may be thinking, I am nowhere but in this chair in the city center. And God says, if you're in Christ and you are worshiping right now by faith in him, you are entering into heavenly worship. The church militant, pressing on, the church triumphant in glory, together, worshiping Jesus. That's what we're doing right now. That's what you should be doing. And notice that he says to them to stir up in them joy. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he starts to enumerate all the things, you almost get a sense that the writer of Hebrews is getting a glimpse into the heavenly realities the way the Apostle John does in Revelation. When John says, I looked and I saw 
a multitude too great to number from every tongue and tribe and nation and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out, You are worthy, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. And here the writer of Hebrews, in a sense, is giving us that same sight that John says. He says, You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly, the whole church throughout human history who have trusted Christ before us, gathered together. You know, as I, as I thought about this this morning, I thought about the recent deaths some of our congregants have had in their families and how in both cases this time they were believers. And that means that right now they are in glory in the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. And let me tell you this, they are in a vastly more joyful position than we are here in this worship service and yet we are joining with them we are joining with them and then notice that the writer of hebrews tells us we've come to the church the assembly of the firstborn in heaven to god the judge of all now that may not sound like good news to you coming to god the judge of all i mean we just talked about how holy he is But here, he's the judge of all who is for you. He's the judge of all who is for you. That means that the God who ought to be against us, because that judge becomes our Savior in Jesus Christ, is now for us. But he's still for us as a judge. He's the God that we go to with our cares and our concerns and our burdens and our longings and our fears. He's the God that we go to and call upon for deliverance and help and strength. He's the God who who works for those who wait for him. He is the judge of all the earth, and he is on our side in Zion. He is for us in Zion. And notice that the writer then tells us and that we've come to the spirits of just men and women made perfect. And then there in verse 24, and I want you to focus on this, the difference between Sinai and Zion is that Jesus The mediator of the new covenant is there and the blood of sprinkling, which speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, here's what I think we need to consider today. Number one, we need a mediator. No one has ever been able to approach God without a mediator. God becomes the mediator in Jesus for us. Think about how marvelous that is, that the God who can't be approached without a mediator becomes the mediator. That's amazing. The God who says, don't come near, turn back, I'm too holy, I'm too righteous, says, draw near, I've done everything necessary for you. And the difference lies in this, that you've come to Jesus and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You know, that little contrast is interesting. The whole Bible, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, can be summed up in the message of the blood of Abel and the message of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Abel cried out for justice against Cain, retribution against his brother. God said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It called out for cursing on Cain. It called out to show forth all of the depravity and wickedness of men in the fall of Adam. It cried out for all the justice of God against it. And the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy and pardon and peace and joy and blessing 
and acceptance and access to God. And the message of the Bible, Lloyd-Jones is so right to say this, is summed up in law and gospel, the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus. And the question is, have you had your guilty, sinful, shameful conscience sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? Because at the end of the day, the only thing that makes the difference between Sinai and Zion is that everyone who comes to Zion has had their consciences sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. You know, I think that there are several groups of people in the world spiritually. Um, One is those that don't care at all about this and love the wickedness they do and they excuse their consciences. Their conscience excuses them and they, they condone everybody else doing wickedness. And then there are people who have a sense of guilt and shame for their sin and, and they know that the things they've done are wrong, but, but they try to fix themselves. They try to do good things and they try to, that they may get involved in social causes and, and they try to give and they try to, they try to quiet their conscience through giving, you know, may not like that I'm going to use this illustration. There's a show on television I love um, in which um, a man who becomes very wicked has to always go to this lawyer to help him out. And there's this one scene where um, he comes in and he dumps a bag of money in front of the lawyer to help him cover up something he's done. And the lawyer says to him, whoa, conscience is expensive. Conscience is expensive. And what the Bible says is conscience is expensive and there's no amount of money and there's no amount of service and there's no amount of good works that you can do to quiet conscience. Conscience, uh, in the words of the Puritans, is God's spy. And yet, here's the grace of the gospel. God says, in the shedding of the blood of Jesus, everyone who believes has their consciences sprinkled from dead works to serve the living God. And that means even you, the third group, those who have believed when your conscience condemns you because of sin you've done and Satan comes in and accuses you and we love to listen to Satan tell us, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that. I can't be a Christian. And at that point, at that point, you need to go and be washed in the blood. This is the whole point of the song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. And the Christian life, let me tell you, is one of us constantly going and being washed and cleansed and having our consciences renewed. And what God wants for you, if you're a believer, is to have the joy and the peace that Christ has silenced the law that he has hushed the law, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And I'm convinced, I want to put this out here this morning, I'm convinced that we don't appreciate the reality of belonging to that heavenly worship event because we don't adequately go daily and have our consciences renewed by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. And I'm convinced that what the writer of Hebrews would have us do if we're going to maintain on that straight and narrow path is to every day go back to an application of the blood of Jesus on our guilty consciences. And that every day we would put ourselves under that healing blood. And we would remember these words because the result, the result of that happening is love and praise and joy and peace. And let me say this, you have to battle for that. As a Christian, you have to battle for that. If you're an unbeliever, you need to get that. 
If you're a Christian, you've got to fight for that. And that means fighting on your knees and fighting in the scriptures and wrestling and believing the gospel and meditating on all that the scriptures say Jesus did through that blood. He has loved us and he has washed us through that blood. He has bought us with that blood. He has interposed that precious blood. The Bible says that you were not bought with gold and silver, perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And you need to work hard at fighting to believe those things and to embrace those things. And then the result is we come out. We come out having wrestled and having found peace through that blood and knowing that we're reconciled to God and having worshipped him through that blood. We come out and then our song is the words of this hymn, Let us love and sing in wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Listen, that's, that's Hebrews 12. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Let me say this. I think the singular reason why we are not more fervent in our witness to our neighbors, bold in our witness to those around us, loving and caring to other believers, and pursuing holiness in our own lives is because we have forgotten that Jesus has hushed the laws of thunder and that he has sprinkled our consciences from dead works to serve God. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus and off of the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, and let me say this, what you need to learn to listen to is not just me up here telling you these things. You need to learn to listen to the blood of Jesus. The writer says it speaks. It speaks. The blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. Now notice, secondly and quickly, that the writer gives a warning in verse 25 to 27, and it's the same warning that surfaced all through here. What if you choose to ignore this? What if you choose in complacency or blindness or dullness to say, you know what, I don't care about that. I've got a wife, I've got kids, I've got work, I've got this to do, I've got this to do, I just bought a field, I've got to go do this, I've got to do this. And you choose to ignore this through busyness or complacency or because you want to be with somebody that's not your spouse because you would rather have 10 minutes of pleasure than an eternity of glory, than an eternity of glory. And if that's the case, the writer says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. And so there's a danger. There's a danger to know all the glorious truths of the gospel. You know, I'm watching those friends I've told you about who have left the ministry for sin, whether it's women or false religion who have left gospel ministry. And I'm watching them go deeper and deeper and deeper away. And at the, at the foundation of every one of their lives is they are refusing to hear him who speaks from heaven. And they know it, and they've heard it, but they will not listen to him with the ears of faith. They will not, they will not prostrate themselves before him. They will not humble themselves under his word. 
and, and I can't make them, and I can't make you, and I can't even make myself. Notice that the writer says, notice that he says, his voice once shook the earth, but now he has said, yet once more I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And what he's saying is, God's voice has spoken clearly in Jesus about the world to come and about the everlasting inheritance. And if his, his voice shook the earth at Sinai, what will that mean when the heavens and the earth pass away? And when all there is is God and you before God, see that you do not refuse him who now in Christ speaks from glory. And notice what he says. He says, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain, there is a, after, after this world passes away, as the hymn writer says, that the, the skies be rolled up like a scroll. When this world passes away, there will be a world that remains forever. There will be things that will never pass away. There are the, the eternal realities behind this. And what we're being called to listen to is the eternal realities beyond what we see. The eternal realities that you can't see with your eyes, but that God has spoken to us from heaven in his son. Do not refuse it because you know what? And I'm going to say this very, very seriously this morning. If you reject the gospel it will be worse for you than those who rejected the law at Sinai. The book of Hebrews is very clear about that. If every transgression of the law deserves punishment, how much worse it will be if we reject Christ? And so there's a warning to all this that we have to take seriously. And then finally, there's a call to respond to the privileges of grace. What are we supposed to do? Look at verse 28. Let us have grace. Let us be grateful. Let us respond with thanksgiving. The best remedy to sin in your life is thanksgiving to God for Jesus. I'm utterly convinced of this. If there is binding sin in your life, I guarantee you, you are not being thankful to God for Jesus Christ. And everyone who is thanking God for Jesus Christ is turning from sin that so easily besets them. You can't, there's, there's a correlation. The one rises, the other falls. Either we're being grateful for the grace that we have in Christ or we're embracing sin. That's it. Those are the two options. And so the writer says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let me put it this way. If you're a believer, you need to be assured. You need to be assured that you belong to the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. You are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is to flood your mind and your heart. And you know what? When we forget that, that's why we have hardship and difficulty and trial and frustrations in our homes. That's why we get frustrated with people in the church. That's why we have difficulties in life. That's why when hardship hits, we complain and grumble because we forget that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so the writer says, let us have grace and let us worship God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Far from, far from setting aside God's holiness, the grace that we have in Christ establishes it. And when we go to him boldly, when we go to him boldly in gratitude, and when we go to him boldly because our consciences have been sprinkled from the guilt and the shame of sin, we go to him reverently. 
And we go acknowledging that the same holy God never changed his holiness. He upheld his law. He provided mercy. And all of that happened in the death of Jesus at Calvary. And so when we look at the cross, it produces joy and gladness and thanksgiving. And it produces reverence and awe and trembling. And those two things are not antithetical. Great gospel joy. Great worshipful reverence to God. Now, I'm going to argue as we close, when we get that, when we get that, our lives are transformed. It changes everything about the way that we approach everything. And what becomes the most important thing to us is not our children or our jobs or our well-being or anything else. It's the blood of Jesus that speaks better things than that of Abel. And when that's the most precious thing, and that's the thing that provides everything else, you'll have joy and gladness as you follow him into glory. That's the goal. That's the goal. Joy and gladness as you follow Jesus Christ into glory. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for reminding us of the heavenly realities and reminding us of the access that we have into your presence. And we thank you even now that we are worshiping with an innumerable company of angels and the spirits of just men and women made perfect. And we are worshiping you, Father, and worshiping you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to believe and embrace And to apply these truths this morning, we pray that you would give us that joy inexpressible and full of glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.